So this week we have the Parsha of Balak, and uh, that's actually the Parsha for everyone. Uh, finally, Chutzla uh, Aretz is catching up with uh, Eretz Yisrael. As of this week, Chutzla Aretz is no longer an island. And uh, although in other years <coughs> we find that the catch-up is not necessarily in Chukas and Balak, perhaps in other parshas, uh, often it's uh, Matos and Masse, but uh, there's many, many calculations that go into uh, the timing, but just a very practical matter, of course, for this week, it wouldn't really help if Chutzlarz waited for Masse, Matos and Masse, because in Eretz Yisrael we'll also be reading Matos and Masse together, so uh, there isn't really a time to catch up there. It happens earlier on. Be that as it may, <coughs> we have the Parsha of Balak and Chuslaris Chukas and Balak. The focus, of course, of the Parsha of Balak is actually Bilam. Balak gets the, the name, but that's more or less it. Bilam really is the focus. But it's Balak's plan to requisition Bilam to curse B'nai Yisrael. And this he does with the message that he sends to him, and this is in Perik Kafbe's Pasuk Vav, where he says as follows. And now, Please, or now, curse for me this nation, it's too mighty for me, it's mightier than I am. Perhaps I can diminish it, and get rid of them from the Aretz. And that's a bit of a question as to which Aretz does, does uh, Bollock want to get rid of them from? Is it from the world? Is it from Eretz Yisrael? Is it from being right near him, which is where they are? <coughs> Having conquered the uh, Sichon and Og, they are literally right next to Moab. Maybe that's the Aretz he wants to, to get them away from. Either way, Bilam will help. As he says, Ki for I know, Esa Mubarach, whoever you bless it will be blessed, or is blessed, Vasher or you are. I know, says Balak, what, your words make a difference. Whoever you bless is blessed, whoever you curse is cursed. And the question that uh, Rishonim deal with and Chazal themselves as well is what exactly is the nature of Bilam's power? How does he come to have this ability to for blessing and for curse and to affect people by the things that he says? We understand that on some level that everyone has some power, but Bilam seems to really have uh, taken this to, to a whole different level. And where does it come from? So actually, the Gemara, and this is the Gemara in a couple of places, it's in Maseches Brochus and Daf Zayin, Maseches of Odozara, Daf Dalid, seems to have what we could call a rather one-sided approach to Bilam's power. And that is, the way the Gemara explains it, is there is a certain time of the day where Hashem, so to speak, gets angry. Kel zo'em b'chol yom. Hashem gets angry, again, so to say, every day, says the Gemara. Bilam's 
secret is that he knew that time. And the Gemara says, <coughs> a curse that is laid at that time is very potent indeed. And the Gemara goes so far as to say that there would have been enormous damage done to Bnei Yisrael had Bilam only been able to lay those curses at that time. In the event, says the Gemara, Hashem circumvents Bilam's plans because he suspended his anger for those days. And for us, we don't fully appreciate what it means for Hashem to be angry, why it's important, and why it was such a special measure to suspend that anger for those days. <clears throat> but the Mepharshim explained briefly that Hashem's anger is to restore a balance, that there shouldn't be absolute chaos in the world, but some input of din, some input of justice, just to remind people that life is meant to be used positively and it's not just absolute uh, tohu vavo. And therefore it was no small thing for Hashem to suspend his anger for those days, but that was necessary. And we see from here the danger that was posed from Bilam. If the only answer uh, seemingly is for Hashem not to get angry, it means that if he did, Bilam's curses really would have had very significant effect. So that's as per the Gemara. Once again, to be clear, what does Bilam have? What are his uh, tools? <clears throat> he has this knowledge of this, of this time in the day when Hashem gets angry. And that's when he can curse the Jewish people. Rabbi Nubachia, who observes that according to the Gemara, it emerges that Bilam only really has the ability to cause damage. He doesn't really have any capacity to cause good. That's why we introduce the Gemara's approach as being one-sided. It's one-sided in the sense that Bilam only can influence things in one direction, in a negative direction, by cursing at that time of Hashem's anger. <clears throat> but we're not aware that he has any ability to, to bless. And in fact, says Rabbi Nubachia, this will explain to us one or two things. Firstly, we find that when Balak wishes to be uh, successful against the Jewish people, he enlists Bilam to curse the Jewish people. But why does he take the route of him cursing the Jewish people, which would then leave Balak none the better? Wouldn't it be a better idea if he would ask Bilam to bless Balak? In that way, in the balance of things... He would still come out over the Jewish people. What difference does it make if the Jewish people are uh, put in a negative state or Balak is put in a very positive state? Either way, he'll, he'll overcome the Jewish people and he will emerge as blessed. So why take the route of having Bilam curse the Jewish people? But rather, says Ibn Abachia, we see from here that Bilam doesn't really have any power to speak of in the area of bracha which means the only way that he can help you is to curse your enemy, but he can't bless you. <coughs> Secondly, says Rabbeinu Bacher, we know that Bilam has quite an appetite for money, and he'll do whatever it takes in order to get it. Well, here's a simple Shiloh. Why not give himself a bracha, 
Is that possible? Is there some bylaw whereby he can, cannot uh, uh, use these powers for himself? Let him bless himself with Oshavachavot, with all the riches, and then he won't have to, to uh, lease out his services to anyone. He can just be uh, wealthy by himself. Apparently, once again, says Rebbeinu Bachia, blessing is not an option for Bilam, only to curse. And therefore, if he wants money, he has to earn it. I wouldn't say the good old-fashioned way, really the bad old-fashioned way, but he has to do something for it. And finally, says Rebbeinu Bachia, again, if we want to know, does Bilam really have the power to bless? He gave himself one blessing. And that's when he says, Tamos nafshi mos yeshari. May, uh, may I die the death of the upright, meaning peacefully and gracefully pass from the world. That's the one bracha that we have on record for Bilam about himself. In the event, he was killed unceremoniously on the battlefield uh, by the sword. He just happened to be there. Not much in the way of fulfillment of his bracha of Tamos nafshi mos yeshari. And therefore, for all these reasons, says Rabbeinu Bachi, it really corroborates what the Gemara is saying, is that Bilam only really has power to do harm, not to do good. He can't do good for himself. He can't do good for anyone else. He can use his abilities, if anything, to, to, bless, to curse the, the enemies of, of Balak, and that's what, that's what he wants him to do. There is just one problem, however, because don't forget, in... Balak's overture towards Bilam, <coughs> which we quoted just a moment ago in Pasuk Vav, he in fact said, Kiyodati, for I know, Eisashed Tivarech, Mivarach, whoever you bless will be blessed, Asher Toor, you are, whoever you curse will be cursed. So Balak really, uh, he, he, he describes Bilam's abilities in both directions. Says the Sforno, yes, because He's looking to put Bilam in a good mood. He's looking to have Bilam agree with him. You're hardly going to get yourselves in the good graces of someone if you say to them that when it comes to blessing people, you have no capacity whatsoever. When it comes to curses, so that's your, your, you're the man. You're the, you're the one to, to, uh, to requisition their services. And therefore, what we would say in our terminology, in other words, he, he flattered him and says, that you're in both directions, you're absolutely amazing. If you bless people, they'll be blessed. If you curse, they'll be cursed. It happens to be for various logistical reasons. I prefer you to curse uh, my enemies. I could just have easily asked you for a bracha. It's just, that's just the way it goes. It's the way I'm feeling today. But this is the way that uh, Bullock is basically lying to Bilam about the multi-directional capacity of Bilam's abilities. And it could be that Bilam knows that Bullock is lying, but for someone like that, he likes to hear it anyway. And, um, and it's in, in further encouraged him to, 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 take, to take the job, which is a very interesting thing in terms of how COVID works. In other words, if Bullock knows where Bilam's co-op lies, only to do damage, Bilam must know where Bilam's co-op lies which means that basically they both know that Bullock is, is lying through his teeth when he says, I know that you can give brachas, and still it works. And go, go work that out. That's really the world of, uh, of COVID. <clears throat> so to come back to what the Gemara says, that Bilam knows this time 
that Hashem gets angry with all of the very mysterious things that, that go with that, the, the value of Hashem getting angry, the, the, the price that was paid for Hashem not getting angry during these days. But the Gemara pursues this matter and asks the question, how long does Hashem get angry for? And the answer, says the Gemara, is just for a moment. In the words of the Gemara, rega, <coughs> as indeed we say in Psuke de Zimra, in Tehillim, ki rega ba'apo, ki rega ba'apo, Hashem is angry just for a moment. But that Pasuk also tells us that this anger is there for constructive reason. Ki rega ba'apo, chayim bertsono, Hashem desires life. It's in, the, it's in the pursuit of life that this anger exists in order to, to just rein in some type of sense of framework and discipline and accountability so that life becomes productive and not absolute uh, chaos, as we said. So how long does Hashem get angry for? For a rega. And then the Gemara asks a question that the, being the Gemara, it has to ask. Namely, how long is a rega? And that's, <coughs> as we see in so many cases, abstract or nebulous concepts, the Gemara needs to quantify them. How long is a rega? Okay. To which the Gemara gives a couple of answers, but the easiest answer to, to uh, absorb for us is the amount of time it takes to say the word rega. Rega commemorate. If you, rega, that's it. And that's a Gemara. And this leads Tosfus to ask a very interesting question. And once again, the Gemara has its job to define everything. Tosfus have their job, which is to raise all the questions that need to be raised. And namely, says Tosfus, <coughs> what are we saying? We're saying that Bilam's uh, ace in the hole is that he knows when Hashem gets angry. How long is that? A moment. How long is a moment? The amount of time it takes to see Rega. Says Tosfus, that's not very long. I mean, what type of litany of curses can a person really come out with in the amount of time it takes to say the word rega? I mean, if you, you know, by the time he's thanked his host and his, uh, uh, etc., and the welcoming committee, it, it's gone. And if he has to clear his throat, he's finished. So what can you say? So Tosas give two terutsim. The first Teret says Tosus is, <coughs> there is a very destructive word that a person can, can utter in the amount of time it takes to say the word rega, and that is kalem. Kalem means destroy them. Klaya is destruction. Kalem, destroy them. Short and to the point. You can say that within a rega. So that's very interesting <coughs> because as Rebuvan Margolius points out in the Sefer Margolius Hayam, to Sanhedrin, this is one of the reasons why Balak always makes a point of taking Bilam to a place where he can see the people. He has to have eye contact with them. Sometimes all of them, sometimes some of them. What's behind that? So we may have understood that it's for purposes of somehow forming a connection to allow the curse to be laid. And maybe so. We know in the world of brachos, that's how it works. If you look at something, Moshe looks at the land of Israel before he gives his brachos, and you look upon someone, and that's why all the cases where people laid their hands on, on other people before blessing them was when they couldn't see them. 
like Yitzhak with uh, Yaakov and Esav, like Yaakov with his sons. <coughs> it's all, they need to have a, some type of connection. And if it, if it can't work through visual, it has to work through tactile or, or the like. So perhaps if that's true for blessing, it's true for curses. The, the effect of the words will be enhanced <coughs> if there's visual contact. But Rabbi Margolio suggests that maybe there's another reason. If all you have is the time that it takes to say the word kalem, which literally means destroy them, the question is, who are they? Who's them? You have a pronoun, but you have no noun. Where's the object? And therefore, they need to be in the picture so that when you say them, it's clear who you mean, because you don't have time to elaborate. So that all of this is very... Uh, uh, interesting in light of the first answer that Tosas give that you have a rega, you've got to start and finish within that rega, and you only have time for the word kale. <coughs> but then Tosas give a second answer. And the second answer is, says Tosas, if you want to know how much can you say within that rega, the answer is not so much. But the point of the Gemara is that a as long as you have started in that rega, as long as you, you have your foot in the door, so to speak, and your curse begins at that rega, so then you're in. And then you can proceed to say whatever it is that you wish to say. So these are the two very interesting answers of Tosfus, <coughs> the parameters of how Bilam was hoping to capitalize on his ability to curse B'nai Yisrael. What's very interesting is there is a, a discussion among the poskim, in fact, among the halachic decisors that is spawned by this tosfos. <coughs> and it begins by recognizing that every tefillah has its zman, it has its time when it begins, its time when it ends, that is to say the time frame within which one can say that tefillah for whatever it is, for chakras or whatever, for mincha. Okay. So here now becomes the interesting shina. What if a person is very close to the end of the time of that tefillah? If we say for argument's sake, Mincha will go until Shkia, for argument's sake. And he's two minutes <coughs> away from Shkia. But he knows that under normal circumstances, it takes him, on average, it takes him four minutes to say his Shmonasri. So he will be starting within the time but by the time he finished, the time will be over. So what should he do? That's the Shiloh. <clears throat> so, of course, <clears throat> the, the Jewish answer to this question is daven earlier and, and don't put yourself in a situation like that. Which is, and of course, there's a lot to say uh, in, in reference to, to such an answer. But if a person is in that situation, well, the Mishnah Bura, based on the Magan Avram, says in that case, he shouldn't start. Don't start what you can't finish in time. Since you, you, you need to be davening within the time of that tefillah, and you won't be able to have the whole thing within that time, <coughs> so therefore, so therefore it's, it's done. It's, it's lost. Perhaps one can daven tashlumen, what's called, but uh, depending on circumstances. But don't start what you can't finish on time. However, this position is disputed by one of the great Hasidic masters, the Rebbe Rebunim, Reb Simcha Bunim of Peshischa. 
And Peshischa was a very interesting branch of Hasidus, quite different than the others. There was a good bit of uh, a confrontation between them. But Peshischa, it spawned other Hasiduses like Ger and Kotsk and uh, Radzin and so on and so forth, Ishbitz and Sokachov. And the Rebbe, Rebsimcha Bunim of Peshischa, says, if, you, if, if it's still within the time, even if you only have two minutes, you should start. And even, you should and can start, or can and should start. And even though by the time you finish, the time will be over, and this is interesting because this is from the world of, of Hasidus telling you that sometimes the time can be over, but since you start it in time, so it's acceptable. Where does he get this idea from? Says Simcha Pashischa, it's from Tosfos. Where did, where did Tosus ever talk about this? Says the, says the Rebbe, it's the Tosus about Bilam. What did Tosus say? Tosus said, you have a certain time, which is the, the moment of curse, the rega of curse. And if you miss it, you've missed it. But Tosus told us that as long as you start within the time, you can then continue, and it's all considered to be, to partake of that moment. Well, says the Rebbe, don't we have a pr- principle that mida tova meruba, that a good measure is always better than a bad measure, that, that well, something is true for bad, it should certainly work for the good. And therefore, if in the world of curses, Tosva said that as long as you started within the appropriate time, you can continue even beyond that time, and it all accrues back to that time. So too with regards to davening, says the Rebbe, as long as you started within the time of the tefillah, you can continue even beyond that time. So this is quite, it's quite a chiddush because we seem to be drawing a halachic idea, you know, and the times of tefillah are halachas, a halachic idea from the world of agoda. In other words, the whole question, what is Bilam's koach and how does it work and what could he say and how does that work, <coughs> that would all seem to be in the realm of agoda, of the non-halachic uh, domain. And there is a concept which the Yerushalmi says in Peah, and uh, quoted by many, that we don't derive halachas from agodas. The, the two are different domains. Each one has its function, but they're not the other's function. The function of agoda is not halacha and vice versa. And yet here we have this tosvus, which is uh, in the world of, of agada, and the Rebbe comes and derives a halacha from it. It happens to be, however, <coughs> that there is a... Uh, approach which is held by many, which is this idea that one doesn't derive halacha from agoda is only if the two clash, or if there's reason to assume that the halacha is not like what the agoda is saying. But if there is no message from the world of halacha one way or the other, one can in fact learn from agoda. So that would seem to be the position taken by the Rebbe. At any rate, it certainly seems to be the difference between, let's call it a Hasidish way of looking at things and the more mainstream halachic way of looking at things. So it would seem. Except, there is someone very firmly entrenched in the world of mainstream halacha who says exactly the same thing as the Rebbe of Peshisra. And he is none other than the Arach HaShulcha. In Simen Kuf Yud, Sifkot Nehei, 
the Rechashulchan says, I know that there are those who say that if you don't have time to say the whole thing by the, by the end of Zman Tefillah, don't start what you can't finish in time. I know, but in my humble opinion, you can start. And even though you'll finish afterwards, it's still acceptable. And the reason why I say this, says the Aruch HaShulchan, is because of the Tosfus about Bilam, who said that if you start in the right time, you can finish even after that time. So this is uh, all of a sudden two interesting uh, allies, the Rav of Navardak, the Aruch HaShulchan, and the Rebbe of Pashischa, literally uh, coming to the same conclusion from exactly the same source. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, did, do not mention this to Paskan Halachas, but just to show how the discussion that starts in the, in the Parsha, especially of Bilam, I don't know if Bilam realized he would have such a, a halachic debate surrounding his, uh, his desire to curse the Bnei Yisrael, but uh, in, in spite of his worst efforts, we, we, can, we, we, we learn a halacha from that uh, regardless. What we do see, however, and, and as, as we mentioned at the time, Bilam's ability to damage the Jewish people through whatever knowledge he has, whether it's the knowledge of this rega of anger, was very real. And we see that the way later Sukkim refer to this parsha as a great kindness of Hashem. In fact, the, the Haftorah for Parshas Balak, and it's for this reason it is the Haftorah. It says, Ami, my, my nation, remember what happened with Balak, what happened with Bilam. He, he hired Bilam to curse you. Leman da'as Sidkos Hashem, so that you should know the kindness of Hashem, meaning you needed Hashem's kindness to escape the damage of Bilam's curse. If Hashem had not been kind to you at that time, there would have been, there would have been damage. So we do see that it was something that did need to be avoided. <coughs> What's very interesting, though, is that the full measure of what Hashem did on, for us on that behalf was not only to thwart or to stall or to frustrate Bilam's curses, but actually to turn them into blessings. And this is something which is discussed, well, you can see it in the Parsha, and he comes out with blessings, but, but it's actually mentioned explicitly in Parsha's Kiseitse, when it talks about Loyavo, Amoni, Umoavi, Bekal Hashem, those two nations that cannot marry into the Jewish people, and among the reasons given is because they hired Vasher Sachar Alecha as Bilam ben Baor, they hired he or they hired uh, Bilam to curse you, and then the pasuk says, "But Hashem did not want him to curse you." Hashem levracha. He he reversed the curse into blessing. Ki Hashem because Hashem loves you. <coughs> and that's now an interesting question, namely, was it necessary? for the blessings to be turned into curses. We see, on the, to the extent that we can understand it, it was necessary to avoid the damage from the curses, but was it necessary to turn them into blessing? And what purpose was served other than just, quote-unquote, more blessings from, from Bilam, for the Jewish people? But the Meshachachma, as, as is often the case, he has an, an insight and a uh, a way of looking at the situation which is an angle that perhaps one, one might have not otherwise considered. And, and one puts it all together, and that's one could say the collage of the Meforshim to, to, to give this uh, to the, the rich and as full a picture as possible. <coughs> we know, says Meshachachma, the Jewish people are currently headed towards a series of wars. The wars of the conquest of, of Eretz Canaan. 
and that's aside from the wars that, that they need to conduct or might need to conduct even in order to get into Eretz Canaan. Sichon and Og are not part of those who are of Canaan. They were they obstructed and uh, themselves attacked the Jewish people. So there's wars before the wars. And war is a dangerous thing. And it has to be done. And the Jewish people are there, are there to do it. But it is dangerous. And therefore, one doesn't enter a dangerous situation without assuming as much strength as one can and garnering and, and, and making use of whatever one can in order to emerge victorious. One of those things is to affect the morale of the enemy. Because if their morale is high, they'll be more formidable and others may be tempted to join in. We know that very often wars against the Jewish people, other people would join in just because they thought it would be easy. If only they knew, and they, they talk themselves into it, and it's a, it's, words make a difference here, and, and feelings and atmosphere make a difference here. And this idea of the impact of, of deflating the morale of the enemy is mentioned as early on, as early on as Az Yashir. The splitting of the Red Sea in Az Yashir. Shamu Amim Yurgazun, Chilach Palashes, the nations heard, they trembled, fear took hold of them. And this is something that uh, Rachav said, Rachav to those two spies that Yeshua sent. She says, We heard everything that happened, we've heard of your experiences. We've heard all that, everyone is quaking. Everyone, their, their hearts are melting. Their, their spirit is, is, is deflated. And that's part of the war. So is there any further way to deflate the morale of the enemy just coming in? Says Meshachachma, yes, there is. Enter Bilam. He didn't, en- he didn't think he was entering for this reason, but by the time he was finished, he did. Bilam is a known entity. Everyone knows Bilam's words make a difference. In whatever direction it is, that's the perception of Bilam. And therefore, the kindness of turning Bilam's blessings, pardon me, his curses into blessings, <coughs> which were things that he pronounced publicly, and everyone heard it, was to further diminish the morale of the enemies of the Jewish people. When they heard that even a person such as Bilam, who certainly would not be suspected for harboring any love of the Jewish people, <clears throat> but he could not help but say that in the end they will be victorious and they will be successful and they will, uh, no, no one should, should stand in their way. And to hear that from Bilam, and no one saw that coming, that had the effect of further disintegrating the resolve and every bit counts. And this, says Meshachachma, we see his vision as to, as to where is the love in turning Bilam's curses into blessings. It's not just that the Jewish people get more blessings. It's that everyone here is Bilam has no choice but to bless the Jewish people. How do they feel now in terms of uh, rating their chances against the Jewish people? And in fact, working backwards, says Meshachachma, this is the reason, the way he understands it, of the miracle with the donkey, which is a whole parsha in itself, absolutely baffling, 
And you have this situation where, where Hashem, the, the way the Pasuk describes it, Hashem opens the mouth of the donkey, it starts to speak. What is that doing? Who, who is that helping? And how is that contributing to, <coughs> to where the Parsha is leading? It says, Meshachachma, because if it's a question of morale, if it's a question of how people react to Bilam, so one thing needs to be clear, and that is, Bilam is saying these things because he has no choice but to say them. What's the alternative? Again, for a person who's, who starts to think in that way, so everyone knows Bilam likes money, and uh, his going rate is a house full of gold and silver, as he himself has pronounced. <clears throat> so maybe the Jewish people secretly offered him two houses of gold and silver, and, uh, and, he, and he went for it. And that's where the blessings come from. It has to be crystal clear that all the words that are being said here are coming from a higher source. And how is that illustrated? How is that demonstrated? By an animal that doesn't have the power of speech at all starts to speak because Hashem uh, allows it to. It's clear from that stage that whatever Bilam is going to say, it's because Bilam has basically taken taken the place of the donkey now. And whatever he says, it's because it's what Hashem wants him to say. So again, the Meshachachma with the, the, what we could call the psychological or the experiential uh, element, which is all part of the picture in this very uh, unusual situation. <coughs> so Bilam's curses do not work. In fact, not, not only don't they work, we never even hear them because they get turned into blessings. But just before he leaves... He doesn't leave without a parting gift for Balak. And that is in Perik Kafdalit Pasuk Yud Dalit. Perik Kafdalit. Sorry, Perik Kafdalit Pasuk Yud Dalit. <coughs> so Bilam is now disgraced. And Bollock just wants to get rid of him. But one thing he says before he leaves, Pasuk Yudalad, Vata, Hinaniho Lechlami, okay, I'm going home now. But I want to give you an Eitza. My curses didn't work, but I'll give you a piece of advice. Ash counsel. What this nation will do to you in the end of days. What's the Eitzah? What's the council? Rashi from the Gemara fills in the information. Umahia Eitzah. What's my advice to you, Balak? My curse has failed miserably, but what's my advice? Elo kehem shall eiles sones zimahu. The God of this people hates promiscuity. So I'm reading from Rashi. Rashi then says, V'chule etc. Kedi'isa bechelek, as it says in Perek and what the Gemara says there in the Gemara in Sanhedrin in Perkelech is that he says if you're able to somehow trip them up in the area of immorality, so then that's where the damage will come. And as we know, so it was. So this is his Eitzah. To curse them didn't work. But if you can cause them to sin, that will, be, that will cause damage for them. The flow of the Pasuk is still difficult. Either way, it's difficult <coughs> because it says, again, to read Pasuk Yudalad, I will give you counsel. What this nation will do to your nation, which is 
either way difficult because the Eitzah is what you are doing to them. Not what they're doing to you. It should have said, I'll give you Eitzah. But it doesn't say that. It says, I'll give you Eitzah what they should do to you. It's very difficult. Uh, some Mephoshim explain, this is one of those examples of, of a person euphemistically transferring their misfortune on the other side. As if to say, really, what he does mean is, this is the Eitzah of what you should do for them. But it's a very despicable thing to do. It's thus phrased in terms of them doing to you. That's, that's a, a common way of euphemistically referring to, to something terrible but that a person doesn't want to say about themselves. At any rate, where do we see this Eitzah, this council, applied? In the beginning of the very next Perik. Perik Kafei Pasuk Aleph. Vayeshev Yisrael Beshitim. So Yisrael settles in Shishim, in Shitim. Vayachal Ha'am Liznos Abbanos Mov. And they start to act in, in, uh, with the zinus, pr- promiscuously with the, and, and get involved in immorality, with the benos moav. That's Bilam's Eitzah. Rashi comments, Ayidei Atzas Bilam. That's Bilam's Eitzah. So, it's an inter- the second Rashi is interesting because it seems somewhat redundant. If we try and be particular with Rashi, initially, Bilam says, I'll give you an Eitzah. Says Rashi, the Eitzah is, get them involved in immorality. When it actually happens, Rashi chimes in again, so to speak, and says, that's Bilam's Eitzah. We know it's Bilam's Eitzah. You told us six psukim ago. So why does that knowledge need to be refreshed for us or Reinforced. What is Rashi coming to add? One of the lesser-known works on Rashi, and there are many, many works on Rashi, as we know, is a sefer called Or Yashar by Rabbi Yomin Zev Hartman. <coughs> and um, very, very special sefer. And he says as follows. The full Eitzah, the full council of Bilam Tabalak here is not just, quote-unquote, that to ensnare the Jewish people in sin. That's not all. Rather, it's specifically that it should be the Jewish people that cause the other side to sin and not vice versa. In other words, somehow it needs to be orchestrated that the Jewish people are the inciters to sin not the daughters of Moab. The question is, why? Why is that so important? Now, the answer, we might say, is obvious. Because the more the Jewish people are the insiders, the more wrongdoing there is, the worse it is for them. If they are the victims, so to speak, they're not completely innocent, but at least they were incited towards sin. It mitigates in their defense. But if they now become the cause of the sin and they're inciting others, however that can be brought about, it's much worse for them. I mean, that's the Balabatish explanation as to why better they should be the inciters than the incited against. But there's more to it, says the Oryosha. Moab, for whom Balak is their king, have a very interesting situation, a very interesting status. <coughs> they are protected to a certain degree. And the reason why 
says the Zohar Kodosh, and we, know, we see, for example, that Hashem says, leave off Moab. Don't start war with them, both Ammon and Moab. And in fact, the Gemara talks about this, but the Zohar uh, elaborates on it uh, even more and says the reason why Moab have this protected status is because they are currently the carriers and the possessors of a very significant spiritual commodity. And that is the future of the Mashiach, which, as we know, is contributed significantly through Moab. In the end, it will be Rus, who will bring in from Moab into the Jewish people. And in fact, evidence, in a sense, (coughs) of the protection that harboring the soul of the Mashiach has for Moab is that as soon as they gave it up, they went downhill. Because as soon as, as Rus left Moab and now becomes part of the Jewish people, Moab doesn't really have that much going for them anymore. And they, and they were decimated, uh, first and foremost, by David HaMelech himself. Because the, the, their asset had been taken from them, had departed from them, and therefore their protection also left them. Now, why does Moab have this merit to have the soul of the Mashiach in the first place? What did Moab ever do? Or what did anyone in Moab's family or their forebears ever do? The answer is, the forebear of Moab is Lot. The father of Moab is Lot. And Lot has merit with Avram. We know that Lot, whatever the merit will be, he could have said that Sarah was was not Avram's sister, but he didn't say anything. Whatever is considered a merit for Lot, is what augurs well for Moab. That's what allows them to be keeping for a while the soul of Moshiach. However, Balak is afraid that the time is coming to a close. In other words, his protection, his protected status is about to expire. That's his fear. The question is, why would he fear such a thing? How does he, what makes him think that the protection he has as a result of the kindness done to Avram by Lot is about to expire? The answer, says the Or Yashar, is because there's someone else who also did a kindness for Avram, as a result of which who also was granted great success, and that person was just destroyed. That person is none other than Og Melech Habashan. Og, who sees great success, <coughs> and one of the reasons why is because he is the one that came and told Avram that Lot had been captured. Vayavo Hapalit, he's the refugee who came from the war, Vayaged Avram Ha'ivri, and that set up the whole uh, chain reaction which resulted in Avram going to war and, and with that miraculous victory, that stunning victory, and Og has a part in that. Even though his intentions were not necessarily l'shem shamayim, we shouldn't accuse him of uh, such things, but nonetheless, eschus is eschus, and especially <coughs> for someone who doesn't really have that many long-term prospects. So all of the benefits of their, of their mitzvahs will accrue to them now. In fact, according to Samaforshim, uh, this is exactly what was behind Og, Og's thinking, 
that he would be able to damage the Jewish people. It's the merit that he has from Avram. After all, we know <coughs> that if, if a, a, a Russia has a merit from a mitzvah that they did, there's no guarantee they'll use that merit for a mitzvah. It's actually much more likely that they'll use it for an Aveira because they're a Russia. And that can happen. And that, says the Rashba, Rabbi Shlomo ben Aderet, is the deeper meaning or the inner meaning behind the famous depiction in the Gemara of the battle between Og and the Jewish people, between Og and Moshe. The way the Gemara describes it is that Og looked at the Jewish people and He uh, surveys the camp and picked up a mountain that was equal in size to that camp in order to drop it on the Jewish people. In the event, other things happened. Ants came, ate down the mountain, and he, got, he was stuck. And then Moshe comes in the end <coughs> and strikes him a fatal blow in his, in his ankle and kills him. That is the way the Gemara describes it in the beginning of the ninth parak <coughs> of Masechus. Brachos. It's a very, as we can appreciate, mystifying Gemara for many, many reasons. But what it means, among other things, says the Rashba, is that <coughs> when the Gemara says that Og picked up a mountain and held it over his head, and with that sought to damage the Jewish people, what is he referring to? It's referring to the fact that he's looking to access the merit that he has from Avram Avinu. The others are called mountains in the Navi. Yeshaya HaNavi says, look at the mountain that you're hewn from. Habitu el Aharim. And therefore the idea of picking up a mountain over his head refers to accessing the merit <coughs> from someone which is higher than he is. And he's looking to cash in and damage the Jewish people as much as he can. Now, in the event it didn't work out for him, with the, the way the Gemara describes it, the ants which are eating into the mountain, which the Rashba explains as the, are the prayers of the Jewish people. But in the end, the fall of Og, as we mentioned, comes from him being dealt a death blow to the ankle by Moshe, which is a very unusual way for to, to be killed, uh, especially for someone like Og. He appreciates the... The Achilles heel had yet to be invented. And therefore, what does it mean that he's struck in the ankle and he dies? But rather, says Rashbam, we, we understand that Og's merit is in his ankle. It's in his heels. It's in his feet because he ran from the war to Avram to tell him. And therefore, what the Gemara describes <coughs> as um, Moshe administering this death blow to Og in his ankle, meaning he neutralized the merit that Og had in his feet. And, and, and in the end, Og was defeated. So this is very interesting because Og and Moab have a lot in common. They're both heirs to a kindness done by Avram. And that gave them a certain amount of protection. Og's protection just expired. Obviously, his situation is a little different. He tried to cash in his chips to damage the Jewish people. And that's why his account was closed. But either way, Balak sees, <coughs> it seems there's the, the time of reckoning is nigh. In fact, says the, uh, says the Orchadosh, or Yosha, 
<laughs> the very beginning of the parsha says, "Vayar Balak ben Sipor, Balak saw es kol asher asa Yisrael lo emori." He saw everything that Yisrael did to the emori. Now, who's the emori? Well, again, in a generic sense, it's the Amorite people. But on a, on a on a further level, there's one particular emori that he that he saw what happened to him. It's Og. Oak belongs to, to the nation of the Amori. <coughs> and he saw what happened. And now Balak is afraid. So what's the, what's the solution? Says Bilam, I'll give you an Eitzah. If the Jewish people appear to be nearing the realization of their destiny, which means the time is, is up now, or the time is very soon going to be up for you to have to part with the soul of the Mashiach, it will enter in them, and that's the end of you. So what's your, how, how do you defend yourself against that? You need to defer them from realizing their destiny. You need to knock them down spiritually so that they're nowhere near the time where you should have to give up the soul of the Mashiach, and otherwise engage them in sin. And they're, they're, all, they're at the threshold of Yemosa Mashiach now. You can defer that. You can offset that. For, for the time being, <coughs> by ensnaring them in sin. There's just one problem. And that is, if you, if you ensnare them in sin in the wrong way, you will then ruin everything for yourself. How so? We know, <coughs> and here we talk about the, the neshama, again, it's an esoteric idea, but of course there's many, many different elements to, to all of these situations, but that we say the neshama of Mashiach was being held by Moab until it could enter the Jewish people. There's just one problem. Moab is not allowed to enter the Jewish people. Even if they convert, they're allowed to convert, but they can't marry into the Jewish people. And therefore, halachically, how could it ever happen that the soul of Mashiach, whoever's carrying it, be, could be transferred? Lo yavo Moavi bekal Hashem. But the answer, of course, as we know, is that the restriction and disqualification of Moab marrying into the Jewish people applies only to the males. As the Gemara says, Moavi velo Moavis. The prohibition is only against the males from Moab and not the females. And therefore, how will it enter into the Jewish people? Through one of the females, which in the end was Rus. However, Moab their relationship with the Jewish people isn't over yet. Why is it that only the males are barred from marrying into the Jewish people, not the females? The simplest reason, based on the psukim, although there's much to discuss, but the simplest reason is that the reason given by the Torah itself, why can Moab not marry into the Jewish people? Because they didn't come out with food and drink when you came out of Mitzrayim. They should have. And they didn't, and that is a compelling point against them. And as the Gemara suggests, maybe it's only men who generally venture out who would be faulted for that. But the women who are more likely to, or less, less forward in that way, it's not a fault for them. And that's why they're not disqualified from that lack of kindness. But what if the, what if the females of Moab should provide another reason for them for Moab to be disqualified. Another point of 
incompatibility and antagonism between Moab and the Jewish people. Like, for example, ensnaring them in sin, which is worse than not bringing out food and water for them. If the, if the women are indicted for that, no one will be marry, able to marry in to the Jewish people from Moab. But if no one can marry in, and there's no way that Moab has anything to contribute to the future of the Jewish people, so then their credit will end there and then. There's nothing protecting them anymore. And therefore the channel has to remain open for the females of Moab to marry into the Jewish people, to allow that possibility to exist, but withhold it for now. How is that to be assured or ensured? Says the Aryashar, that is why it is imperative that <coughs> the daughters of Moab should not be the perpetrators of what's about to happen, because that would indict them and disqualify them from entering into the Jewish people, ever. They can't be the perpetrators, they need to be the victim. Somehow they need to be available, but the fault needs to be placed with the Jewish males, not with the Moabite females. And that way the damage is done, but the channel remains open for, for Moabi women at some stage to marry into the Jewish people. Says the Orchadosh, that is the simplest reading, or at least of the simpler readings of Pasuk Yudalit. Let's read again Pasuk Yudalit. Vata says Balak to Bilam, I'm going to <coughs> my people, I'll give you an, an Eitzah. And you know what my Eitzah is? The Eitzah is that this people needs to do it to your people, not the other way around. Our question initially was, the Eitzah is how you can do something bad to them. No, you have to arrange for them to do something bad to you. It's bedafka the way the Pasuk is written. So that they are the perpetrators, you're the victims, they capitulate for the time being or abdicate on their, on their status of being ready to receive Mashiach, but you're still able to provide it. But that will be a long time in the future, not something that you need to worry about. And for this reason, <coughs> says the, says the Yashar, we now get a deeper understanding. It's such a nuanced point, but a reminder of, of how the, the care that we need when we, when we read the comments of Rashi. Because now we go forward to the first Pasuk of Perik Kafei. Vayeshev Yisrael b'shitim. Yisrael dwells in shitim. Vayachal ha'am, there's no self b'nos Moab. And the people start to, to, to be involved in this with, with b'nos Moab. And what does Rashi say? Ayideyatzas Bilam. That's Bilam's Eitzah. And our question was, we know. I mean, that's literally just a few psukim ago. We heard about the Eitzah. What's being emphasized here? But Rashi is saying, look at the Pasuk. You'll, you'll see something which is very surprising and actually very distressing. Because the Pasuk says, Vayachel ha'am, it's the people, the Jewish people that is to say, wherever the Am is, but it's not the Moabites, it's the Jewish people 
who Yachal, they were the ones that started the whole thing. Liznos Elmbanos Moab. In other words, Moab was successful however they did it, and this leads to other things, which is, again, the discussion could, could broaden further and further. <coughs> However, the Zara was somehow involved here, by the, which it was, Balpaor, and Balpaor isn't even the indigenous, so to speak, of Odazara of Moab. Moab, they've got their own brand of Avodazara. It's called Kamosh, which we saw in last week's parsha. somehow bringing that in in order to draw the Jewish people in. But the result was that who started the whole Aznus matter? It's a Benos Moab to, pardon me, it's, a, it's the Am, it's the Jewish people towards Benos Moab, says Rashi. That is the specific Eitzah of Bilam, that they should do it to you. And that was actually accomplished by, by the Moabim. And indeed, that offset, this terrible tragedy, just Erev Erev, just as we're about to enter into the land of Canaan, the plague and all the everything that went, that went with that, uh, the end of Parshas Balak really was. And this is the irony, really, of Bilam, <coughs> is that what he wasn't able to, to damage with his curses, he was, he was able to inflict enormous damage with his Eitzah. To, uh, to Balak, and it was almost like his P.S., it's his parting comment. The main thing he was flown in for didn't work at all. And he gives him one piece of advice when he leaves, and that, that has a devastating effect, um, which uh, really impacted on the Jewish people at that time. And if it's at that time, it's really until our time, as the full fulfillment of their destiny was offset from them, and it's something that we are looking forward to being fulfilled in our time. In the not too distant future, it should come. Be mehera, be amenu, amen.